Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. Today we are joined by our adjunct fellow, Dennis Wesselbaum. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Oliver. Thanks for having me. We've invited you as a fellow economist, but more crucially as a fellow German expert living in New Zealand, because I have just published another column in news from dedicated to our fatherland, Germany, and a look at the German economy, because I am quite concerned about what's happening in Germany right now. And I understand from previous conversations we've had, you are too. If you're looking at Germany as an economist now, and you've been in New Zealand since 2016, I've been out of Germany since 2004. What is the first thing that comes to your mind, Dennis? State of emergency. I think there is a lot of stuff that's going on at the same time. We have short-run factors like the Ukraine war. We have long-term trends which are not in our favor. So it's basically a state of emergency at almost every important economic aspect that we're looking at. Mm. So from, from energy policy to financial stability to you know how can we increase growth, population dynamics, and, and the list goes on. And everything has to be addressed to some degree. And I'm not sure that we're there yet. And let's go through the list and maybe just summarize briefly what I published in Newsroom. So my main thesis is actually that none of these problems are really new. The problems have been with Germany for at least 20 or 30 years in some cases. We talked about the energy transition away from fossil fuels to renewables to dependence on Russian gas. I mean, that's been going for decades. On top of that, there's demographic change, which cleans out the labor market. There's simply not that much labor supply left to deal with labor demand. And if you put all of this together, you have a very unpleasant picture, really, for Germany. But what's happening now, probably sped up by COVID and the Ukraine war, is that all of these different developments reinforce each other. And so, bizarrely, actually, for a country that used to be an export champion, they have now a trade deficit for the first time, for the first time really since 1991, I believe. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Which is something the Germans weren't used to. I mean, the Germans were used to actually sailing through every crisis, whether it's the GFC or the Euro crisis or even COVID, kind of sweeping their problems yep. under the carpet, covering them with a lot of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. Yeah. But this time it doesn't work anymore. Why? I think we reached a point now where, and, and let's let's just begin with energy policy. So probably most people in New Zealand won't, won't know the energy policy history of Germany, but After the Fukushima earthquake and incident at the uh, nuclear power plant there in 2011, I believe it was, Germany quickly disabandoned nuclear power. And the remaining three reactors, I believe, are going to be getting off the grid this year unless they get extended, which I believe is currently what the Green Party um, is, is debating, which is, which is just ironic if you, if you go back in, in time in the discussion at the Fukushima event. And they started a big transition towards renewable energy, solar power, wind, everywhere, which is kind of difficult if you have a big industrialized country like Germany, where you need to have, you know, a base amount of electricity that you're producing. And if this is not nuclear, cool, what else is it? So I think that's something where it just shows that there is not much of a strategy, really on how we're going to deal with this. And now we are the victims of the dependency that started, what, 20-something years ago with 
Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 now, and generally receiving gas and oil, a lot of it from Russia. And you could um, probably also say that the trend towards renewables started more than 20 years ago. I think this was started yes. by the Schröder government in the late 90s yes. with feed-in tariffs, with all sorts of subsidies and regulations, and yep. it never really worked. It was extremely expensive to produce electricity in Germany. Consumers had to pay extremely high electricity prices compared to European neighbors. And at the yep. same time, Germany became reliant on foreign sources of energy. So not just the Russian gas, but also when there was not enough wind or not enough sunshine in Germany, which happens occasionally, they had to import nuclear power from France and other countries. Yep. So and all of this was a problem. Yeah, and if we produce too much energy, we had to sell it at negative prices. Indeed, and I believe even before Ukraine, that happened on between 40 and 50 days a year that prices for electricity yes. suddenly turned negative when they were super high the rest of the year. Yes, exactly. So you'd have to sell that. And so overall, it paints a picture of, yeah, we want to be you know, more green in our energy mix. Great. But lack of strategy and thinking this through and, and how this can be achieved. And to the nuclear power thing, there was just a statistic the other day I saw that most countries in the world that have nuclear power plants are planning to have more nuclear power plants in the future. Even Egypt is Egypt. planning to even <laughs> Egypt is planning to have two nuclear power plants. I don't know if this is going to happen, but you know. So Germany is the, I think, the only country who is shutting down and not planning to open nuclear power plants. Now, again, I think, you know, as a fellow German, you know that we like this moral superiority that. We, we have that, no, uh, we are right, nuclear power is bad, and we can live without it. Everyone else seems to you know, think differently, but I think it's a bit of a German habit to have this moral superiority and, and go with it, even if it's questionable. That, that it's seems to be strategy. a particular German habit, and also to lecture neighbors then. Yeah. Let's talk about something else then. It's not just energy, of course, which is a complete disaster. Actually, the German army is a massive headache. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite funny if you see what kind of weapons Germany provides to Ukraine. It's old East German weapons, which I'm not even sure if they're working anymore. And that's not a joke. No, no, it was reported that the parcels in which they were stored were moldy. Yeah, exactly. So it's not clear if they if they actually work. And then we're providing basically Cold War technology, Gepard, anti-air tanks, our rocket artillery is kind of okay, but it's not the standard that you know US and other NATO countries have. So it becomes a little bit of a sign that Germany, which has leading weapon manufacturers, is providing outdated technology. And the state of the military is just beyond belief. If you look at, and that's, I think, a story we, we exchanged some time ago that the, the military is renting rescue helicopters to train their, their pilots because yes. their own helicopters are not able to fly anymore. There was a story actually <sighs> that the German Automotive Association actually offered Bundeswehr pilots mm. to just train, just to get the necessary hours so they wouldn't lose their helicopter licenses. Yeah. So it's just Again, a dependency here is a strategic dependency on, well, the, the Americans will defend us. 
And, you know, we don't think about expeditionary forces. So we're basically just depending on that. And that's all there is. And now we're realizing, oh, well, maybe we should have kept up and updated and, and built some capabilities that we're now missing. And again, the big irony is that we have, you know, the top weapon manufacturers in the world. If you think about you know, Kraus Maffei, I believe. Yes. HDW for submarines. Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall, Heckler Koch, all these guys. So it's ironic to think about the industrial power, but then there's hardly anything actually in the German in the German military. But it was also and a political problem, a bureaucratic problem in procurement. I mean, procurement comes up yes. again and again when it comes to the military. They simply don't manage to even buy this stuff, even if they have the money. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's even worse than university bureaucracy. Um, <laughs> that's, that's so, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of stories of, of soldiers asking for socks and it takes them years to actually go through the bureaucracy to, to get a delivery. I read stories um, actually the soldiers bring their own clothing to work. Yeah, yes, that, that is true as well. So, yeah, it's just a bad state. The ministry, Ms. Um, von der Leyen, she didn't really make great strides there with all her uh, inquiries into her usage of consultants. That didn't go down well. And then she f somehow deleted her text messages about all of this. As what happens. a surprise. Yeah, um, yes. You know. There's no corruption so, you know, in Germany, it, by the way. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, but no, I mean, seriously, there is going to be massive amounts of investment needed. And that's not the only field. I mean, there's massive amounts of yes. investment needed in infrastructure. I mentioned German mm -hmm. rail, which yep. is already almost a joke in two words. German rail. Yep. Massive underinvestment um, under in infrastructure, massive delays. Hardly any train is on time anymore. I mean, the stereotypes yep. about Germany is this kind of efficiently ticking country. They are simply not true anymore. Yeah, there, there, there is there are, again. There's interesting stories around that. I had a friend who told me the other day that of the twenty last trips to his office with the train, I think he only had to pay full price twice, and all the eighteen others were delayed. So he can claim a, a you know a rebate. So that's interesting. One thing that I noticed every year: the duration of the trip becomes longer. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's you know very clever accounting because if you you know increase the time of the trip but it doesn't really take you longer then your statistics of being over time look much better and so that's a trick that has been played by the deutsche bahn a lot so yeah no it, it's massive underinvestment into even roads as well bridges and then you go to the education sector where you look at the state of schools and i have you know friends who have school kids and they tell me, you know, over the weekend, we're going to go to school and we're going to be painting the classroom. Indeed. You know, and you're thinking, I mean, the education probably itself is reasonably good. It's just that there's a lot that could be improved. Yeah, no, I agree. And by the way, if you want to avoid German rail and you just want to fly, that's not really an alternative either these days because you probably have to queue for four or five hours to check in and another four or five hours to get your luggage back at the end. That is true. And I believe Lufthansa has canceled almost all of its flights today because of a strike. Yes. So, so what's gone wrong in Germany then over the last, say, 20 or so years? I mean, the last major reforms happened in the early 2000s. And after that, probably not that much left, right? I would agree with that. 
I think that the last reforms that we have seen were the Hartz reforms, so labor market reforms, reducing unemployment benefits. And that was in 2003. Which, yes, that was that was 2003, 2005. So that was that was interesting that Germany went in the direction of reducing unemployment benefits when you know New Zealand is now thinking about increasing them. Mm -hmm. I think we, we can learn some lessons from from what happened after that, which made our labor market extremely more flexible and I think added to the growth that we have seen after those reforms. But that was basically the last major reform that I can remember. And since then we had you know, management, day-to-day -day management of, you know, sometimes very rough situations, global financial crisis, euro crisis. Migration. Migration, yes. But not much in terms of strategic policies where you would think that was a good policy that really changed something and, and benefited the country. So I think we moved from these old-school Kohl-Schröder type of politicians towards well, basically Merkel for 16 years, Yes, who was a very good manager. But I don't think she was a, I don't think she had a vision of this is where I want to put Germany on a track. I totally agree, and actually. I had a column on Angela Merkel in the Australian Financial Review towards the end of her time as Chancellor. And my concluding sentence was that Merkel governed Germany for 16 years, but she never led. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a fair summary. And and that's that's the generation that we have right now. Now, the new Chancellor Scholz, I mean, obviously he's occupied with uh, with Ukraine at the moment, and he doesn't really know what to do, I think, because he's you know obviously dependent on Russia, but then again, he's has to be kind of against Russia. So he doesn't even really seem to, to know do. what to do with his top secret briefings. Did you see that story? Well, so they um, found top secret briefings in his household rubbish. Yeah. So so yeah, I think I think there is just I'm not sure if he really expected to be chancellor to be honest, but Probably oh, well, not. it happened. And and now he's actually being overtaken by the greens. I think the greens are actually doing a pretty decent job. Yes. And kind of saving our reputation at the moment. Well, let's go so, maybe a little bit backwards. Um, so you mentioned yep. the last serious reforms happening between 2003 and five under Gerhard Schröder. They were the last reforms Germany really had. I agree with that. Ironically, they were undertaken by one of the villains in German politics now, Gerhard Schröder. Yep. He was probably not a villain when he was in, in office. He was doing broadly the right things, at least in his second term. But yep. of course, his involvement with Russian gas, with Gazprom and Rosneft, that really put a cloud over his record. Yeah, I think he's the personification of the German problems. He was he was very pro-Russian. He's you know good friends with with Mr. Putin. He was also um, very anti-American, by the way. Yes, yes, and and you know initially with the Iraq War, I think the you know the average German was probably agreeing with that. But yeah, no, I, I think I think that that and he is basically this this two worlds yeah we need russia for gas and oil but on the other hand we might not like how they treat you know other people so what what exactly are we doing here and he received a lot of blame for his making us dependent on uh, russian gas and oil or not getting it out of the dependency which 
you know, the government after also didn't do. So, yeah, but it just looks like he was, again, he was the last kind of politician with, I have an idea and I'm going to put it through. And it, he listened to people who were actually, you know, reasonably smart and came up with good policies like Hartz. And they were painful, but they benefited the country. Since then, I don't see this, A, I have a clear idea what I want to do, and B, you know, let's have a critical mass behind that and, and implement that. Yeah, I think that's right. Why Actually, that is, is a good question. Well, one of the reasons might be a story that Spiegel magazine uncovered a few years ago. They found out that no German government had ever commissioned that many opinion polls as the Merkel government. And Spiegel had a cover story dedicated to that. And I remember the headline. The headline was government by numbers. So basically everything the Merkel government did was the result of extensive opinion polling. And she was always delivering exactly what people wanted. She never led any debate. She waited until the debate was basically decided. And then she sided with the majority, whatever it might yep. be. So no leadership, and that meant the bigger problems were never properly tackled. She was always taking the easiest way out. Yep, probably the only exception is the migration one, where, where, she, where apparently so goes the story that she opened the borders with a phone call. Yes, um, but actually even that on that one. That was the only one where it's against the... I'm not even mass. sure whether it was against it, because opinion, public opinion at the beginning of the migration crisis also signaled the Germans were extremely welcoming. They probably didn't anticipate how many people would come, But yeah. actually, if you read some accounts of what happened in these 2015 days in September or August, Merkel is reported to have told her people, I don't want to have any ugly pictures at the border. No. So again, it was just driven by her desire to remain popular. Yeah, no, that is correct. So yeah, it's governance by polls. And it's also the case that she never allowed any critical person next to her. Yes, she never uh, allowed anyone to turn up as a potential successor. Exactly. So that, that I think, is what we saw in the last election. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> There wasn't really anyone who could you know, be plausible as a, as a chancellor, if you exclude Merz, which I'm um, still surprised that he didn't run. But anyway, so yeah, no, I, think, I think that's a very good point. And the question is, are we, with all these things that are going wrong, infrastructure, education, energy policy, industrial policies, do we actually believe that we can turn this around? That, you know, do we believe that, that Chancellor Scholz is in a position to turn this around, even just one of these things? Well, the problem, I'm not so sure. No, me neither. My question is really, would he even have the means to turn it around? Because a lot of the problems are completely outside of his control. I'm talking, of course, about the ECB. So yep. inflation in Europe is out of control. The ECB, meanwhile, cannot act itself because that would just tip several southern European countries over the edge. And yep. therefore, the Germans are now living with 8% inflation and probably rising. Yeah, so I think when you talk, when we think about the ECB, so I think I think the latest number that came out, and, and luckily in, in Europe, we have monthly inflation, not, not this terrible quarterly thing as in New Zealand. Indeed. It seems to be plateauing now, whether that's just temporary or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But generally, yes, we have something like 7% to 8% inflation. The ECB, I think, has always been late 
they were late after the global financial crisis with quantitative easing. They are now late in increasing the interest rates. They have completely underestimated the problem. I mean, people have been been screaming at them for, for quite a while to do something and, and they haven't. Then you go into all these problems of implicit or explicit financing of member states, which, you know, means now that if you if they raise the interest rates, they're going to be probably bankrupting, you know, a lot of countries. So they, they, they are they are in a position where they would have to increase the interest rates, but I don't think they can actually do that. So how is it all that going to play out for Germany then? So you have a double or triple whammy for Germany. So you have yeah. declining terms of trade because they have to pay a lot more for energy while yeah. their own exports are probably less in demand, especially with a struggling car manufacturing industry. Yeah. Then on top of that, you have uh, the general level of inflation, which is outside of their control, which is made for other European countries' benefits. You have a crippled labor market because of demographic change and the disruptions caused by COVID. You've got cri a crippled infrastructure as well, which is now yeah. bursting at the seams. So what is the way out for Germany? Or is Germany going to be the next European crisis? I think we can we can paint a very dark picture or we can paint a very bright picture. Well, we are Germans. I of course, we would paint a very dark picture. Of course. So I've been in New Zealand. You know, you've been longer in New Zealand than I have. But, you know, I'm starting to, to you know, try to be a bit more optimistic. So I, I think what we see is that for energy policy, if the Greens are talking about nuclear power, that gives me some hope that we get, you know, back on track where we have a, a you know, a reasonable policy mix between renewable energy and something like nuclear. Yes. Okay. So I think that that is possible and that would be a major step forward. So that would reduce, you know, or yeah, limit the problem that the energy production currently is to, to quite a degree. So I think that could be a positive outcome. Just on that, um, by the way, just briefly, yes. it is a generational divide within the Greens, if you notice, yes. because the yes. older Greens, of course, they were started really in opposition to nuclear power. So for them, it is of almost course. a taboo to start yes. thinking about it. For the younger Greens, yeah. of course, that doesn't matter. For them, it's climate change and trying to get yeah. away from fossil fuels, and they would prioritize that over the nuclear phase-out. So it's really interesting to see what's happening in the German Green Party, where you yeah. effectively have two generations of Greens fighting each other. Absolutely. And that's not helped by the fact that, according to law, nuclear power is green in the EU. Because the French wanted it to be green and the Germans well, wanted to have gas included on the list before Ukraine. Exactly. So, you know, but technically it's it's a green technology. So I think that's that's going to be, a, 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 and you're right, I think that's going to be interesting to see what exactly will happen there. But then for military, I think there's going to be a lot of money pumped into it. People will demand outcomes and and they have to deliver outcomes. So I think that's that's something that will happen. In, in the medium run, of course. So I think that's something that we'll, we'll be able to address. Then education, yeah, I, I really don't know. I think the level of education is still pretty good. Of course, it can be better, but you know it's still pretty good, especially compared to New Zealand. But that's something that there will need reforms and, and more money being spent. But that's something that we can somehow address. Then you think about 
EVs, car production. You know, the Germans were really good in, in petrol and diesel engines. That was their thing. That was what we are world known. And no one can really do it at the level that, that the German car manufacturers can. With EVs, that's not so clear. So, yeah, probably still people want to drive a Mercedes, but, you know, will they be in a position soon enough to get a market share in EV or hydrogen, whatever you want to think about? So that's going to be a big question. Are we, are we clearly behind the ball? So we're, we're missed that transition, but there is massive, massive amount of spending getting, getting into that. And I believe that with the with the human capital that these companies have, they will be able to come around. And they still, you know, again, people still want to drive a Mercedes or a BMW or whatever you like. So I, I think that's going to be possible in, in the medium run to overcome. Deutsche Bahn infrastructure in general, so roads, bridges, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, we've been talking about these things for 30 years and nothing really has happened. I don't see that that's going to be changing massively and, and that's going to be bad for, for growth. It sounds like um, a country in decline, which leads me to my perhaps final question for you. What are the parallels then between Germany and New Zealand and what are the lessons New Zealand might want to learn from Germany? I'm thinking of both the dependence on some autocracies for their economic dealings. I'm thinking of defense capacity in the military, I'm thinking of infrastructure, I'm thinking of education. There are a lot of parallels that I see, but what are the lessons? What should we learn from Germany and what should we perhaps learn to avoid from the German example? Yeah, I think I think there are messages that that we're seeing that are very obvious. The one is dependent you have to make risk management in your dependencies that Obviously, for Germany means energy dependency. For New Zealand, it's probably dependency on China as a as an export market. The question always is: Okay, well, are we only dealing making deals with nice people, or or I mean, what are we doing? So I don't know what the answer is, but it's something where where risk management needs to be in place. Militarily, is exactly the same. If if I see that. Australia buys submarines and the prime minister says they're not going to be sailing next to New Zealand, then, then this is just something where it's hard to, to you know, grasp that and understand what, what the rationale for that would be. So I, I think more investment that goes in line with you know, the, the US Pacific strategy Australian Pacific strategy. I, I think that would be something that would be useful. And I'm not saying we need to buy, you know, the latest gadgets or whatever, but you know, proper strategy on on how we can protect our assets would be quite nice. That's probably most of it cyber, but and more if you think about generally per, and more generally perhaps, the lesson to learn from Germany is how important it is to have decent economic input into decision-making, into policy-making, because <clears throat> after the Hartz reforms, that was almost completely absent in Germany, and they're now paying the price for that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's true. I think the, the German structure is not as bad as the New Zealand structure is. I mean, if I look into the German central bank, you know, they, they have very clever people. Except okay. they have and, no say anymore. That's fair. That, that's, that's fair. But, you know, they, they are... They are you know, responsible for financial stability, these kinds of things. So 
for monetary policy, yes, I would agree. So, you know, they, they have they have high entry standards, PhD trained and these kinds of things. So that that is something. If you look into who is uh, Staatssekretär in the finance treasury, which would be a you know deputy secretary or something yes. like that, I would I would assume in New Zealand. They are in some numbers PhD trained economists, as you would expect in something like a treasury, that you know you have some idea about economics. So these are these are messengers that certainly can be taken away. The Sachverständigenrat, the German Council of Economic Advisors, exactly. I think is very interesting if you read the report on that they made about a ban on Russian gas, yes, uh, import on Russian gas. I think that was was very very interesting, which we don't have in New Zealand. So we don't have well independent, if you will, advice in economic terms for the prime minister or the cabinet. So that that is something that is is quite surprising. So, there's a bit of yeah. a there's a bit of a conundrum here, isn't there? So on yep. the one hand, I, I agree with you. Germany's civil service is probably better qualified as a generalization than the New Zealand counterpart and there are many clever people working in the council of economic advisors and the ministries as deputy secretaries and so on. So I think the level of qualification is definitely higher than at least in New Zealand. And yet, the outcome in policymaking terms in Germany hasn't been that good. So basically, it's a failure of politics, not so much of the policymakers and the ministries, but of the politicians not leading them or actually leading them in a direct, different direction. I think the framework is there. I think the framework works. It is the, the ministers, you know, which, which, which are embedded in the actually ministries. Mm -hmm. I, I think... There, there is a lack of, let's call it ambition, of of making policy changes. And I mean, there again, the the German of uh, economic experts, uh, Council of Economic Experts, is making useful policy recommendations. It's just that typically, that there seems not to be much appetite for reforms. So I, I think I think the, the the you know the underbelly is there. The framework works fine. It's just. Are we willing to have you know these policies actually being implemented? And I think that's that's the problem where where we have a where we have an issue. So I think that's different to what we have in New Zealand. In a way, it's the opposite problem. We have, I think, a government who wants to do stuff while there is evidence, and the initiative is 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 doing a lot of that, that maybe you shouldn't do these policies. So I think it's the opposite problem of what of what we see in Germany. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Reminds me a bit of what Jean-Claude Juncker said about policymaking at the European level. He said once, we all know what needs to be done, we just don't know how to get re-elected after we've done it. Exactly. Uh, that, that's exactly right. And if that's your objective, then we may be able to explain the last 20 years of, of policymaking. I think that's a relatively pessimistic note to end it on, but I think that's probably the right conclusion. Classic German. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think I think overall, I think you're right that there is, you know, a lot of bad stuff going on. I would still prefer to be a bit more optimistic that this could be a a breaking point for the better. But I certainly acknowledge the the risks that that are there, and if they are not addressed, this could be really bad. Then let's just end on this Kiwi optimistic note. And, and since I also carry a New Zealand passport, and I think you're preparing for one probably, Dennis, that's <laughs> probably justified. So let's finish with this optimism. 
and let's all try to learn a few lessons from Germany, what to do and what to avoid. But for now, thank you, Dennis, for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. 